Peace and love, peace and love. Peace and love, peace and love. Thank you, Ringo. And I'd like to welcome everyone back to Aberdeen Proving Grounds Hidden History. I am your host, Sean Keefe, along with my co-host, Susan Thompson. Say hi, Susan. Hi, Sean. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Actually, I'm a little crazy. <laughs> you are. I'm, I would I'm just, never have guessed. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm just plum crazy at plum point today. Oh, so I guess that's our that's our secret title for this episode. You guessed correctly. Yes, plum crazy at plum point. And Susan, just what exactly is plum point? So Plum Point is the little spit of land that separates. Swan- Did you say spit? Spit. It's a I've never sp- heard of that. You've never heard of a spit no, but of I land. Love it. Okay. Okay. It's the little peak point <laughs> spit of <laughs> land spit. that separates Swan Creek from the Chesapeake Bay, and this is sort of the center of where. APG was established in 1917, but it actually has a very long history, of course, because it's APG's hidden history. So when you say point, right now, I know that at the north end of Plum Point, there's a little hook almost, correct? Right. It's like a little bump that sort of sticks out right into into the water. Is that what you would call a spit? (laughs) A spit. A spit? A spit of land. Okay. And that faces... Swan Creek. Right. And then to your right is opens up into the Chesapeake Bay. Correct. And so the whole... So you're talking prime real estate here. It's beautiful landscape. I mean, there have been lots of people who who are very thankful that APG sits right there. Yes. Our previous episodes focused on two islands just off the coast of Aberdeen Proving Ground. So this episode, we're going to bring it on inland this time. Right. And Spasuti Island and Plum Point are very close to each other. The bridge onto Spasuti is from the end of Plum Point. But unlike our previous episodes, Plum Point is an area that is actually somewhat accessible to the public if you have a valid reason to be there. For example, uh, the Top of the Bay Club, where we host wonderful weddings and things, is right in that same area. With a beautiful view of the bay. Right. So it's still on a military installation. There's still, you have to be, have a reason to be there. It's not just a tourist attraction. But, you know, I would say more people, more members of the public have seen the area around Plum Point than have ever seen Spasuti or Pools Island. But with peace and love. Peace and love. Just do a little drive-by. Well, no, don't do a (laughs) drive-by. You want to do basically a window tour of Plum Point because you do have to be respectful that these are people's homes as they live, work, and play on APG. <laughs> That's right, John. So Plum Point's a little different, and our discussion today will be a little bit different from what we've done before because in the past we've talked about sort of the deeply entrenched American history that's associated with the islands. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more local. Um, so rather than having like the big American names like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and all those people we've talked about, we're really focusing more on the names of Harford County, Maryland. So it's not big American history. It's local Harford County history. Homegrown. Homegrown Harford County history right here. And that's going to ring true and just a few moments, but yes, very homegrown. So the first Harford County name is Godfrey Harmer, and he was in the 1600s, and he 
and some partners laid out the original plans for Havre de Grace, which was originally called Harmertown. But at the same time in 1658, he and a partner laid out a plan for what was called Swan Town, which is in the area that is now Plum Point. That's interesting because I've never I never came across Swan Town before. Right. So it's it's really shows up in the deeds as we as we start to peel back the layers. It's not a name that we hear today. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Swan Creek, and you, so you hear Swan in things locally, but I don't think there was ever an actual town laid out. From my research, from what I found, is that when this was a matter of record, a landowner was required to use their name, and mm-hmm. they had to come up with a unique name for their property, which is where you get these Swan Towns and Swan Creeks and you know all these Sometimes really silly names. Right. So originally it was called Harmer Swan Town, but this land was never patented. So a patent was really a document granting ownership rights to some previously unpatented property. So the patents really start for this area of land, start showing up in the 1750s and the 1760s. So in 1765, a man named Amos Garrett gave or sold to a man called John Hall of Swantown three tracts of land called the Fishery, Hazard Enlarged, and Cook's Double Purchase Research. There's some silly names I was talking about. <laughs> so that those were three of the properties. And then in 1773, a tract of land called Swantown was granted to William Hall. And he patented a place called Swantown. So those four tracks that I just mentioned, Swantown, the fishery, Hazard Enlarged, Cook's Double Purchase, go all the way back to the 1760s. And they're the ones that you can trace starting today all the way back. Those are the tracks of land of what currently makes up Plum Point. Okay. So was this mainly just one owner? Own the most of Plum Point as we know it today? Yes. So starting from the 1760s forward, it's gone through a series of owners, but it's always been one main owner. Okay. So how many acres are we talking about here? It's about 280 acres. 280 acres. Because if we go back to pools, right? Right. That was just under 300. Right. Okay. But that was always under one ownership or? Pools Island. Yeah, it was never divided. It was divided at some point. It was divided. Yeah. Okay. So here we have Plum Point, which is just as large, but it's only been under one ownership. Right. So there's there's lots of farms further south. And, you know, the tracks that make up Aberdeen Proving Ground is more than these four mm-hmm. tracks. But really the area that we consider the Plum Point Loop area was this one tract of land. And at first it's called... Plum Point. Um, as early as 1799, it's marked on a map. The little point spit of land is called Plum Point. And I was trying to figure out why is it called Plum Point? Because it's P-L-U-M-B. Which you would think would reference someone's name or right. a family. Right. But I can't find anything that references <laughs> references yeah. a family. But I did look up the derivation of the word plum, P-L-U-M-B, because most people think of it as being extremely straight up and down. Like mm-hmm. if you have a plumb line, that means you've dropped a weighted line down. But, oh, okay. But the earliest use of the word plumb actually means to drop the line down for fishing. Oh. 
So I well, that would make sense. think the derivation of the word plum point means that it was a fishing point, and that probably came from you know early, much earlier history that it was a place for fishing. You could drop plumb your line down because we do have a track called the fishery that oh, makes up part right. of this okay. this tract of it's land. It's all coming together for it's me. It's all coming together. So the first time it's really referred to as Plum Point Farm is in the 1850s. Uh, there's an advertisement in the Baltimore Sun newspapers in like the winter of 1853 into the winter or until, you know, December into January of 1854. And it's a man named uh, William Slater, and he's selling what is called Plum Point Farm. And he has a wonderful description of it. And this is the first time we really find out what kinds of structures were there. And it says it's on the bay, four miles below Habitat Grace, at the mouth of Swan Creek. Um, at that time, it said it contains about 300 acres, so 280 mm-hmm. A first-rate land, 20 acres in wood, and the balance in a high state of cultivation. With six fields, he has wheat, he has clover, he has timothy hay. He's advertising that he's put a lot of work into the farm over the past several years. And at that point, he says, the improvements consist of one fine brick dwelling containing four rooms on the first floor with a large passage on the second floor and four rooms. Adjoining is a stone kitchen and wash house with good rooms for working hands. Interesting. So could this be referencing what we now know as Quarters One? Correct. Okay. So so, so the farmhouse that is now Quarters One, which is the commanding general's housing, is an interesting property because it's one of the few remaining structures that predate Aberdeen Proving Ground's occupation of the land. So, oh, okay. So the commanding officer's house was a farmhouse that was on Plum Point Farm. So there's a lot of questions. I mean, we've looked at the documentation on Quarters One, mm-hmm. and it usually, you know, it's sort of like, well, it was built in the 1790s. You know, it was a farmhouse. There really isn't much information about what it looked like. Too much. We have some photographs before mm-hmm. it was remodeled by the Army extensively. But from 1917 forward, when the Army occupied the property, that property, that house, has been the commanding officer's quarters. Yes. So looking back in the deeds, I think the time frame that we have previously documented is a little bit off because I think the property actually probably dates between 1814 and 1822 because during the, when I look at the deeds, there's a pretty big jump in a seven-year period Mm -hmm. of the value of that same, it's the same tract of land, those 280 acres, and it jumps significantly more than doubles in the seven-year period between 1814 and 1822. So my best guess is that it was that time under the ownership of William R. Brooke that the property, the house, was actually built. So the resident of the house, did he necessarily own the land as well? basically the farmhouse? Right. So back in the 1814 through probably towards the end of the 19th century, the property would have been owned and occupied by the same person who was farming it. It really starts to change around the 1860s or so um, because the whole property along with others was conveyed to a company called the Maryland Land and Emigration Company. Mm -hmm. So it was sold out of private ownership 
to this company. And this company was actually, their intent was to build a log boom. Do you know what a log boom is? I have no okay. idea what a log boom so is. So at the mouth of a creek or a river, mm-hmm. they would build a, a sort of floating structure, like think of logs chained together that would be anchored into uh-huh. the bottom to capture timber and logs coming down the rivers yes. so that they can be uh, milled into lumber. Mm-hmm. So this was like a big business at the time. Like Williamsport, PA had one of the largest log booms up on the Susquehanna, further up in Pennsylvania, um, beginning in 1851. So I think these businessmen, including one who's fairly well known, in, in again, in Harford County by the name of Jacob Tome. Mm-hmm. Um, of the Tome School? Of the Tome School. He made his money in lumber and other things. So they were trying to create this industry of timber mills and logging along the Swan Creek, along the Susquehanna. Oh, so this okay. wasn't a very long-lived company. Mm-hmm. Um, by 1875, they were getting rid of all the land they had bought. Oh, okay. So, But at the time, they bought you know, sort of all the land around Swan Creek to build this log boom. So, so would they like, was it a way of transporting trees? Right. Without so, having, you know, to physically transport them, you, you put them in the river and the river would naturally carry them to one spot. Right. And they would sort of be contained behind these yes. sort of, you know, like the one in Williamsport would have like over a million logs and it was like huge. Wow. Like basically it would fill up the river. Would but, they mill them on Plum Point? Or was that the intent? I think the intent was to set up like lumber mills along the rivers, but I don't know that it ever really... That's interesting because I I didn't come across anything like that. Yeah. So you can find references to the Maryland Land and Emigration Company um, because the Maryland legislature had to approve the company um, at the time, but... They Maybe didn't. the river just didn't flow fast enough for Well, and also I read that, you know, it was kind of dangerous to do it in areas where it froze up. Oh, well. <laughs> and we know. We know <laughs> we, that's a problem. We know from past episodes that, sure. th- that the bay would freeze in that area. So. Sure. At noon on December 16th, wreaths across America will be at APG North and South to honor our country's fallen heroes through the laying of remembrance wreaths. For more information on the wreath laying ceremonies, visit www.wreathsacrossamerica.org. Remember the fallen, honor those who serve, teach our children the value of freedom, and thank you for supporting Aberdeen Proving Ground and Wreaths Across America. Well, what's interesting is when we try and date the house, the quarters one home, one thing that they did mention was that part of the stone structure was covered with stucco. Right. And I know stucco really came into fashion like early 1840s. And it could totally be that that stone kitchen that Mr. Slater references in his advertisement is the structure that still Mm -hmm. is considered the oldest part of quarters one, which was a stone kitchen. Correct. So that's that's how I'm tying it all together. You know, what research was done in the past, I think, Mm -hmm. has been a little vague because you and I have been asked many times about the history of quarters one as we get new generals coming into the house. So it's always a little bit of a mystery. So we're trying to lay out. Yeah, what because this was just have. a little farmhouse. Right. Uh, you know, right. it was never an elaborate structure. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm sure it changed over time. Oh, you know? it changed. <laughs> we know that. That's for sure. In the 1880s, the property called Plum Point Farm was deeded to Charles W. Baker. And here we go. Here we go. So Baker was one of the famous Baker family. So the Baker family, his father, specifically George Washington Baker. See, I didn't. I did mm-hmm. get George Washington. <laughs> oh, you know, it's kind of hard not to. So George Washington Baker is really uh, the person who was attributed with bringing the canning industry to Harford County, mm-hmm. which was a huge industry here before. Big money in those cans. <laughs> before APG came. Where did George Washington Baker have his canning business? So he really started it out more in the Churchville area. Okay. Um, he had a farm out there, and that's sort of where he, he began in 1867, um, because there is actually a Baker Cemetery in Churchville. Okay. And that's actually where some Ripkins are buried. If, you, if you're into cemetery tourism, which some of us history buffs are, um, but you can learn a lot in a cemetery. You can learn, you but can. there is still the Baker, the big Baker um, obelisk there, and it's decorated with carved corn cobs wow. appropriately. So, or George Washington Baker had several different careers before he landed on. Um, on Canny, he tried the timber business. Well, we know mm-hmm. how that was going <laughs> in Harford County. Um, but he decided to can for a local market the blackberries, dewberries, and peaches from his own and neighboring farms. Which, like you said, I mean, he was so successful at that he was able to set up his five sons. And one thing that I kept finding out were that the sons far exceeded right. the wealth of their father. Right. I mean, Charles Baker in 1917, as I said, when the army came calling owned this farm called Plum Point Farm, but he owned at least um, two others in the area. Um, so Plum Point was about 286 acres at the time. He owned the adjacent Basuti Farm, which was, you know, just a little bit south of Plum Point. And then a little further down, he owned what was called Level Farm. So at the time, he owned almost 1,300 acres just in the area of mm-hmm. Aberdeen Proving Ground. And what was his main crop? Well, really, what they were growing and canning was tomatoes and this crop called shoepeg corn. Very sweet, <laughs> from what I hear. <laughs> right. So shoepeg corn is a variety of white corn, and it was characterized by being uneven on the cob. Like the, mm-hmm. the little kernels were all over the place, and evidently they looked like shoepegs that were used to at the time to hold soles onto the upper part of shoes. So it was called shoepeg corn, and it was a delicacy out of Maryland, and it was— there now, were, is that still in existence today? You can still get shoebag corn under one of our local brands, the Mitchell brand. Okay. Because um, the Mitchells came later. The Mitchells, the Mitchells or, were about the same time as as the Baker. So the whole area of Aberdeen Proving Ground was just littered with these farms that were being used to supply the canning industry. Okay. So at one point, there were over 200 canneries in Harford County. Now, was Baker, was he just canning his own product, or was he also a canner for other farmers? He set up a whole industry around canning. So in 1908, he built a cannery in Aberdeen Mm -hmm. at the corner of Bel Air Avenue and Baker Street, right across from the railroad station. So he had a cannery right there. He could put it on the trains. Right on the rails. But he also started a 
a brokerage firm where he would contract with other growers. I mean, he extended his business all the way out into Delaware. There was the C.W. Baker had like tendrils all the way over the eastern shore to get corn and tomatoes and can them under the C.W. Baker label. At the time that Aberdeen Proving Ground came into existence in the 19-teens, there were about uh, 50 canners that were active in the area at the time. They were mostly focused around Aberdeen, what was called Hall's Crossroad, Michaelsville, which of course is now part of the testing area of Mm -hmm. Aberdeen Proving Ground, and Perryman, which is sort of a little bit farther down the peninsula. Mm -hmm. At the time Aberdeen Proving Ground came... His plant was turning out like 75,000 to 100,000 cases, and there were about 12 cans to a case of corn each year. Wow. So that was just one company. There were others. There was the John M. Michael Company. There was the F.O. Mitchell and Brothers Company. There was the S.J. Seneca Company. And they were all, you know, local canning companies. And the Army came, and that industry just crashed because— we took all their prime farmland. Did we take or did we ask? Well, it was eminent domain, so oh. we took it, but we paid them for yes, it. Yes, we did. But probably not as much as it was worth, given the fact that we basically destroyed a giant industry at the time. I mean, not that C.W. Baker was, was hurting. Um, so he pretty much stopped canning um, after the army acquired his He was his tired. Land. He was like, enough of this nonsense. <laughs> he passed away in 1918. So oh, soon, there you go. Soon after he had sold his property to the army. But he left his sons and daughters almost like a million dollars. Wow. Which in 1917 yeah. was a lot of money. So very successful industry. All went away because of the army. Can we word that differently? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Did you know we test here every day at Aberdeen Proving Ground? You've probably heard that before. If you're looking for more ways to stay connected with testing notices and activities on the installation, follow us on the Aberdeen Proving Ground Facebook and Instagram pages. Yeah! Susan, if C.W. Baker lived in Aberdeen, then who was living in the Quarters One home on Plum Point? So he had it leased out to a tenant at the time that the Army took possession in 1917. Do we know if Quarters One is the oldest home on Plum Point? I mean, you have the Hopkins house, but does that predate the Hopkins house? Right. I believe that Quarters One, technically parts of it, are earlier than the Hopkins house. Um, the Hopkins house is probably dates from the 1880s. It was the family house of the Hopkins who lived on what was called Mount Holly Farm, which was just south of the Plum Point Farm. Mm -hmm. And it's really in the area of what is now called the main front area, which was the early testing part of Aberdeen Proving Ground. And the Hopkins house was actually moved from its original location closer to the main front to the area where it is now, which is uh, beside Building 310, which was the original Aberdeen Proving Ground headquarters. Correct. Um, So they moved that house there in 1918, and then they constructed some other housing around it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Was the other housing, was it built to match? Uh, The Hopkins house is more of a Queen Anne style, which was popular in the 1880s. 
Um, the duplexes that are there were built in the 19-teens, and they're more of a craftsman style. So they're... And this is on Hopkins Row? This is on Hopkins Row. So they're, they weren't designed to match, but they sort of blend together, I would say. The Hopkins House and Quarters One are the only two structures on Aberdeen Proving Ground North that predate the occupation of the land by the Army. Now, we know that Quarters One has been modified many times from its original structure. Right. Do we know that of the Hopkins House? I believe it wasn't modified. I mean, it's been modified because it's an Army property and mm-hmm. they, you know, they go in and they make their updates as, as, as different um Organizations take over, new people move in. But the structure is, is mostly what it was when it was moved. It's considered one of the larger properties because it had a lot of bedrooms because it was an older, older And it has property. a lot of history, too, from what I understand. Oh, really? That, I, hey, you know me. You always find the fun story, Sean. I know. And it's Especially funny how you never I... come across any of this yourself. Even though I print them out and leave them on your desk. Exactly. And make sure next time it's bigger print for me, please. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. That is pretty tidy. So. All right. Well, cue the music. Local lore has it that the old farmhouse is occupied by its share of unseen guests. It's not uncommon for the tenants in the house to hear the cries of babies and other strange and creepy sounds. And also past and present tenants who have never met usually describe the same unusual experiences, including the cries and the lights which tend to remain turned on despite the efforts of post electricians. Former resident Elizabeth Hopkins, daughter-in-law of the original owner, confirmed that babies and children had passed away within the old farmhouse. So, Susan, I'm sleeping with the lights on tonight. Well, from that article, it makes it sound like you have no choice but to sleep with the lights on. (laughs) Pretty much, pretty much. So have you ever wondered, Sean, what it's like to live in one of these quarters? No, I have not. And after reading that, I decide I ever will. But Susan, oh, I see where you're going with that. I just finally (laughs) got that. I just need to get somebody in here with firsthand experience. Can we do that, Sean? I can make anything happen, Susan. All right. Well, That's about I, all I can do around here. I guess I'll wait and see who, who we'll get. Oh, you, you're going to love it. He's a world traveler. He swims with sharks and loved by the community. But you're going to have to find out who that is next time. All right. I'm looking forward to it, Sean. So I'd like to thank everybody once again for joining in for Aberdeen Proving Grounds Hidden History. This has been part one of Plum Crazy at Plum Point. We'll see you next time.